you want to take your Bible and open it to Matthew 5, or if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you and um, open that Bible to page 684. You should find Matthew 5 there, looking at verses 21 to 26. Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26. Chuck Colson, who's a well-known speaker and author, recounts the story of the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who's well-known as um, one of the main masterminds of the Holocaust. He was a German Nazi back in the 1940s. And one of the witnesses at Eichmann's trial was a Jewish man named Yehiel Diener, And Colson describes how, as the trial was beginning, Diener entered the courtroom and he stared at the man behind the bulletproof glass, Eichmann, this man who'd presided over the slaughter of millions. And the court was hushed as a victim confronted a butcher. And then suddenly Diener began to sob and he collapsed to the floor. Not out of anger or bitterness, but as he explained later in an interview, what struck him in that instant was a terrifying realization. He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like he. And the reporter interviewing Diener later understood precisely. He he said, how was it possible for a man to act as Eichmann acted? Was he a monster, a madman, or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he normal? Yehiel Diener, in that moment of chilling clarity, saw the skull beneath the skin. Eichmann, he concluded, is in all of us. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus agrees. And it's to that sober topic that Jesus turns our attention in today's scripture. Back in the 1980s, there was an alternative punk group called The Smiths who had an album called Meat is Murder. And we could title Jesus' message to us today, Mad is Murder Too. You see, we hear on the news about that criminal down at Sing Sing or wherever who's doing life for homicide, and subconsciously, we almost can't help but thinking, I'm a better person than him. I mean, I haven't killed anyone or anything. I've, I've lived a clean life. I've kept on the straight and narrow. But Jesus is saying to us in this morning's passage, look again. Take a harder look into your heart. There's murder in your heart too and in mine. After all, you get mad at people, don't you? Jesus is saying. You call them names. Maybe out loud, maybe behind their back, maybe under your breath. And then you go on with your worship and you go on with your life so callously indifferent to to these people that you haven't done everything in your power to make things right with between you and them. Murder is in your heart too, is what Jesus says. And we think, whoa, Jesus, lighten up. I mean, lay off. Come on. Jesus' words here are hard to believe, and they're hard to take, aren't they? Well, to understand what Jesus is saying here and why he's saying it so strongly, we're going to have to try to um, take some time to get into Jesus' headspace. And, and to help us do that, let me start 
telling you, uh, start by telling you an old Jewish story. It's about a rabbi named Simon ben Eleazar. And the story goes that, that he was coming from his teacher's house one time, and, and he was feeling pretty good about himself after their, their lesson, whatever they were discussing as he was being mentored there together. He was feeling good about his scholarship, his, his growth and his understanding of the Torah, in his uh, sophistication and his goodness. And, and just then, his positive mood was ruined when who should come down the road the other way and greet him but a man that the rabbi really disliked. Well, the rabbi did not return the man's greeting, but, but in, a, in a fit of irritation, he said, you racha, how ugly you are. Is everyone in your town as ugly as you are? <laughs> that, the passerby said, I do not know. Go and tell the maker who created me how ugly is the creature he has made. Well, in his quick-witted response to the rabbi, this passerby nails right on its head what the root of murder is. Murder is an attack on the creator. And Jesus says, so are anger and harsh words too. Because that other person, however disagreeable, however unlikable, however maddening or hurtful they are, was made in the very image of God, just like you. And so to speak against the image is to speak against the one whom the image represents. In Bible times, when a ruler put his image up around his realm, it was to remind the inhabitants of who their king was. And when someone spoke against that statue, that image, or they defaced it in some way, they were held responsible just as if they'd done it to the ruler themselves. And brothers and sisters, God, the great ruler of this world has populated this world with images of himself all around to remind us of who our ruler is. Every human being on this earth is such an image fearfully and wonderfully made. There's, there's a sanctity uh, about every human life because each of us reflects the likeness, the image of God. And so a sin against a fellow human being is a sin against God, the creator. To murder another is to strike out at God. And Jesus says this is just as true when you murder them with your thoughts, in your heart, or with your words. Mad is murder. Mean is murder, too. Less violent, sure, but, but there's still offenses against the image. And because there are offenses against the image, there are direct offenses against God as well. You see, if you're caught attacking a king's statue, it doesn't matter if you smash the whole thing to pieces or, or if you just spit on it or speak against it. All of those acts are still acts of rebellion against the king, and therefore they all carry the same penalty. Are you following me? All right, so that begins to explain why Jesus speaks in such strong terms about how we treat others. Now let's look at it from a somewhat different angle. Have you ever wanted to murder someone? I, I heard a pastor, <laughs> I hear one honest person. <laughs> I'll make two. I heard a pastor say recently, I've never considered divorcing my wife, murdering her maybe, but not divorcing her. 
And we all laugh, but there's some truth in it, isn't there? There are certain times, there are certain people that, that we just want to shut out. We want to freeze them out. We want to cut them off from us. And murder's the ultimate way to do that. It's a way of ultimately deleting that person from our life. But some of us don't have the guts or, or the means or the inclination to murder someone. And so we find other ways to erase them. Emotionally, we may build a wall against them in our hearts, a wall of anger or bitterness or resentment. We may avoid the person. We may ignore them. We may not speak to them. Or maybe we don't hate them so much that we want to erase them completely. Maybe we just dislike them and so we're content to make them pay, to cause them some pain. So we criticize them. We uh, talk about them behind their backs, turning other people against them too. Or, or maybe we're passively aggressive and we find some subtle ways to get back or to get even. But all these approaches, Jesus says, are about the same thing. They're all attacks on God's image. They're all about hurting that other person or, or pushing that other person away so we don't have to deal with them anymore. And Jesus tells us in the strongest possible terms here in this passage that this kind of behavior and attitude has no place in the kingdom that he has come to bring. It's absolutely not acceptable among his followers. The, the one who, who came down so far to, to, um, to reconcile himself, to make things right, with those who weren't going to make the first step toward him, expects nothing less from his followers that we should do the same for others, that we should live out the heart of God. It's the most important thing in the universe, this heart of reconciliation. And so Jesus says that people who refuse to live this way, who, who insist on going the way of what Jesus talks about in this passage, are bound for the ultimate punishment in the fires of hell. That's what he says, right? All right, well, now that Jesus has our attention, let's take a closer look at this passage. Let's walk through it and see what Jesus is saying here. He starts in verse 21 by reminding us of what we already know. God said to the people long ago through the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, which reminds me of a joke. Uh, LAUGHTER a Sunday school teacher was, was teaching one time on the Ten Commandments to a class of five and six-year-olds, and, and she was explaining the commandment, honor thy father and mother. And then she said, class, is there a commandment which teaches us how we should treat our brothers and sisters? And without missing a, boy, a beat, one little boy answered, thou shalt not murder. <laughs> that boy understood what Jesus is uh, teaching here, maybe better than he realized. Anyway, anyone who did murder the Old Testament law said, would be subject to judgment. And in ancient Israel, this judgment would be the judgment of a local court in your town or your village. And the Old Testament law commanded that anyone convicted of murder by such a court would be uh, stoned to death right there in the village. That's what subject to judgment meant in that case, in that verse that Jesus is reminding us of. But Jesus says, I tell you, notice how Jesus is putting himself up against the law of God, as if he's better than the law or something, as if he's 
God in a position to reinterpret what God had said through the Old Testament. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, immediately this statement raises some questions. I mean, first off, Jesus, isn't anger just an emotion? And, and, and doesn't your word say elsewhere, be angry and do not sin in Ephesians? I thought it wasn't the anger that was the problem, but it was what you did with your anger. And isn't some anger righteous anger, a good anger? Uh, Jesus, didn't you get angry from time to time? Well, some of the early scribes recognizing these problems evidently tried to solve the problem by adding the phrase without a cause to the text. Anyone who's angry with his brother without a cause. Um, the King James Bible, for example, has that variation. It's, it was in the Bible that Angelica read for us this morning. Maybe that's the King James. Um, but scholars who deal with such textual matters suggest that the better solution seems to be to, to, to recognize that that without cause is a scribal addition and that the actual te text is, um, is just, how does it go? Anyone who's angry with their brother, period. But this word anger here is in the continuous tense. And this Greek word that we translate anger here refers not so much to the emotion of anger, but to the expression of anger. In other words, Jesus isn't so much talking here about when we first feel angry to someone, about some, towards someone, whether we have a cause or not, but rather Jesus is talking about when we stay angry angry. When we nurse a grudge, it's this continual sense, this, this emotion of anger that, that finds expression in this, this continual ongoing posture of anger or attitude of anger toward another person. When we let that anger settle in and we let it determine the way we view and treat that other person, that seems to be what Jesus is talking about. That kind of anger, Jesus says, makes us subject to judgment. Now, what is judgment? What kind of judgment does Jesus mean here? Does he mean that, that if I carry a grudge against you, that, that the local court, if, if I'm a first century Israelite, should um, try and convict me and stone me to death for murder because I bore a grudge? No, probably not. It's even worse than that, actually. <laughs> because human courts may be competent to judge outward actions like murder, but they have a really hard time. They're not very good at judging what's in people's hearts, right? And so Jesus must be moving the case to a higher court. And this becomes clearer in the rest of verse 22. But I tell you, Jesus says that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which basically means bonehead or idiot, that they are answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, that's the new NIV translation I'm reading. The older NIV has it slightly differently. The, the older one says, but if you say, or, I'm sorry, if you say raka, you're answerable to the court. But if you say, you fool, you go to hell. There, there's a little Greek uh, conjunction there, which it, it translates as but. It could also be translated and. So, and, um, so the, older, the, the old NIV and some other translations 
we're suggesting that there's a contrast there between Raqqa going to court, you fool, being in danger of the fire of hell. But trying to figure out why a fool is a worse insult than Raqqa seems to miss the point. They're not. One's not worse than the other. And so a lot of the newer translations suggest, and this seems to be the better way to go, that Jesus isn't contrasting one with the other, but rather he's giving several examples and he's upping the ante each time to underscore how bad they all are. In other words, if you nurse a grudge against someone, you'll be subject to judgment. And if you call them stupid, bonehead, you'll be answerable to the court. And probably here Jesus means God's heavenly court, because as far as we know, there was no earthly court where saying Raka would get you in trouble. And, and then finally Jesus is saying, and if you call them you fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. He's upping the ante for each of these things. So what's he saying here? Well, he seems to be saying, when you stay angry with another person, the vast majority of the time, you're having murderous thoughts, aren't you? Not that you literally want to kill them necessarily, but in your anger, anger, you're looking at that sacred, beautiful creation of mind, Jesus says, that, that wonderful reflection of God, and you want to strike out at him or her. Or you want to remove that person from your life somehow. And why? Well, I think what Jesus is getting at here is, He's saying to us, you're selfish and you value yourself more highly than that person or the God whom they reflect. Maybe they hurt you. Maybe they took something very precious to you. Maybe they cavalierly disregarded your needs, your, your feelings, your rights. Maybe they made you look bad. Maybe they ruined your day. Maybe they broke your heart. And now you want to shut them out. You want to get back at them. And what Jesus is saying to us here is, have you lost all perspective? Drop your grievance. Let it go. You should stand in awe of that person, whatever they did, because they are made in the image of God. And God thought they were so valuable that he sent me, Jesus says, to come down and to give my life so that they could be reconciled to God and to you. Don't you realize when you attack that person, you're actually attacking God? And no, of course, no human court is fit to, to try or to judge these inner feelings and thoughts that you have, but God is, and God will. William Barclay puts it this way, commenting on um, Raka and you fool, this name calling. He says, so then Jesus insists that the gravest thing of all is to destroy a man's or a woman's reputation, to take their good name away. No punishment is too severe for the malicious talebearer or the gossip over the teacups who murders people's reputations. Such conduct, in the most literal sense, is a hell-deserving sin, Barclay says. Jesus says. Well, just to highlight the seriousness of what Jesus has said, he goes on to tell two short stories in this passage. The, the first is said in church. The second is said in the marketplace. And notice that if bearing a grudge has to do with how we um, respond when, when um, 
someone has hurt us, then these stories have to do with when we've hurt someone else. It works either way. It doesn't matter who's hurt who. Jesus covers it all here in this teaching. Therefore, Jesus begins, if you're at the temple offering a sacrifice at the altar, and while you're worshiping, you remember that someone has something against you, stop the presses, stop what you're doing right there, leave your offering at the altar, and go and make things right. And then come back and offer your worship. If Jesus was telling this story today, he might put it this way. So you're walking in the door at Bible study. Or you're uh, about to spend some time in your room kneeling down to pray before bed. Or you're singing songs in church. Or you're about to put that check in the offering plate. And then you remember that someone has something against you. Turn around. Walk out. Go, work it out with them, be reconciled, then come back and offer your worship. Have, have any of you ever had to do this? I have. I, I've been in situations where I'd set aside time to pray or to read my Bible, and, and then as I was getting ready to do that, God brought to mind a relationship, and, and I had to go put down my Bible and pick up the phone and make something right. I've also had to slip out of church to patch up a relationship. If I ever get down and walk out the door, you know why. <laughs> Either nature is calling in one of those embarrassing moments, or I've got to go deal with something. <laughs> you see, God is not interested in hypocritical worship. You know, even in the Old Testament, if you stole something from someone, or you, or you said something hurtful to someone, and you came to the temple with a sacrifice um, to have your friends, friends, sins forgiven, to offer that sacrifice on the altar for forgiveness of sins, that sacrifice was not acceptable to God unless you'd first gone to that person and you'd paid back what you stole or you'd um, asked them forgiveness, you'd apologized for what you'd said. Then you could come and you could offer that sacrifice and understand that your sin was forgiven. That's because most of our sins have both a vertical and a horizontal dimension. They're, they're a sin against God, and at the same time, they're a sin against a person. And Jesus is saying here, he's echoing what the Jews already knew, and that is that we're not right, or if we're not right with another person that we've sinned against, then we're not right with God. No matter how much money we put in the offering plate, or, or how long we pray, or how passionately we sing, so Jesus says, just stop. Give up your worship. Your, your worship is not what God wants right now. What God wants is for his children to be reconciled to one another. Then once that happens, come back and we can get on with worship. Now it's not always possible to um, work out our differences immediately. Sometimes the person's far away. We we have to try to reach them by phone. Maybe they're not home or, or we need to write them a letter or send them a text or an email. Other times they may not be willing to accept our apology or to work things out. Um, and, and we're only responsible to do our part to try to patch things up. And, and I think God understands the complexity of this, that we may not always 
be able to follow Jesus' words strictly, literally here. But don't miss the urgency of what Jesus is trying to convey here. Make this priority number one, Jesus is saying. If you're content to live with your relationships in disorder, with resentments in your own heart, with people who have things against you, then you're missing what the heart of God is about. God is all about reconciliation and unity and peace in our relationships. Let me give you an example of how this works. Take firefighters. They have a lot of responsibilities. They have to routinely clean and inspect their equipment. They have to educate the public about fire safety. They have to go in and inspect um, public buildings to make sure they're keeping up with the fire codes. And all these tasks are, are important aspects of their job. But guess what? When there's a fire, they drop everything else because now there's something more urgent than any of those other responsibilities. And Jesus says, for Christians, it's the same. When a, when a relationship is out of sorts, everything else needs to stop. When, when the fire of anger or conflict flares up, put on your lights and sirens and get to that person as quick as you can and work things out. Because until you've done that, before you've done all that you can do to make that relationship right, there isn't a whole lot else that you can do to please God. And there may be some of us who've spent weeks or months or years stuck in our Christian life because there's stuff with other people that we haven't been willing or we haven't made it a priority to deal with. Well, then Jesus tells another little story, this time about being taken to court. Jesus says, suppose you owe another person a sum of money. In Jesus' day, if you couldn't pay your debt and they brought you to court, you were thrown into debtor's prison until you paid. And of course, many people never got out of debtor's prison because it's kind of hard to make money to pay back your debt when you're in prison. So, you know, that's a hole you don't want to, you don't want to go there. And so again, Jesus says, hurry up, deal with it while you still can before you get yourself in that hole. Find a way to deal with the debt before it's too late. Now, is Jesus giving us some practical legal and financial advice here about what to do if you can't pay your debt? Or, or is this one of his parables with a figurative meaning? Is, is he really talking about what to do when we owe someone an apology? Well, it seems to me that the principle is the same either way, that it, that it applies either way. That, I mean, the context here has to do with anger and bitterness, nasty words, insults, with our brother having something against us. But financial debt has to do with relationships too. Money can strain a relationship. Some of us have experienced that. And so whatever the debt is, Jesus is saying, Hurry up and work it out as best you can or, or else you may be punished. And even if you aren't punished on earth, eventually we're going to face the heavenly judge and we're going to be held account accountable to all of our debts to others, whether financial or tangible or emotional or relational. So Jesus is asking us, encouraging us to think, what outstanding debts do you, do I, have in our relationships? Who have we wronged and, and not, um, not, not made an effort to make it right? 
Jesus is stressing to us in no uncertain terms, working out our differences should be our urgent priority. Because the longer we wait, the bigger our problems are going to get. So he's saying, don't wait for the other guy to come and initiate. You go best you can and work things out. Now Jesus' teaching here very much fits with what we've been learning about the Holy Spirit. We uh, looked a while ago at um, Paul's teaching about things that quench or grieve God's Holy Spirit. And, And remember, bitterness and anger were right up there on Paul's list. If we aren't um, making these things right to the best of our ability between us and other people, then things can't be right between us and God either. And, and God cannot be present with us through his spirit. He cannot work among us to the full extent that God wants to um, if we're quenching and we're grieving his spirit. Our not making things right with others blocks the Holy Spirit's work among us. It quenches it. It, it grieves the heart of God. It keeps us from a church, of, from, from reaching the, the purpose that God has for us. Remember, our purpose as a church um, is three things, right? I'm going to do some low-tech illustrating here. It's to know God. This is the up, our upward relationship with God. It's to grow together. This is the in, our relationships with one another. And it's to show Christ, the out, as we reach out with God's love to the world. We've pictured that as a triangle, and uh, it's also on this sheet. This is one of our 10 spiritual growth goals, having loving relationships. The third one here, if you look at your sheet, it says, God calls us to love God and neighbor, and so we are deepening our relationships with God, that's the up, with other believers, that's the in, and with those God calls us to reach and to serve. And Jesus is telling us here that in order to know God better, the up We're going to have to take care of the in with our relationships, uh, our our growing together. And of course, all three of these sides of the triangle are interconnected. And so the out is affected too, because what do you think the church sees when when they look, or what do you think the world sees when they look at the church and they see a bunch of people who are gossiping about each other, who are bearing grudges, who can't forgive each other? They don't want any part of it. Jesus says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So here's the challenge. Will you ask God to show you the murder in your own heart? And ask, is is there someone in your life with whom things just aren't right? Maybe... You have something against them. Maybe you just can't forgive them for it. Maybe you know or you suspect that they have something against you and you haven't apologized, you haven't asked their forgiveness. Don't wait for them to come to you. Go as quick as you can. Take the first step to make things right. Now I realize relationships can be very complicated and Sometimes we're too hurt to forgive. Um, sometimes we don't even know where to start, or, or we've tried and, and it hasn't worked. Um, and so sometimes you can't go immediately to them, but will you purpose in your heart, with God's help, 
to do what you can to patch up the relationship. And, and that might mean starting by seeking out the help you'll need. Maybe you, you need to find a reconciliation coach, someone who can help you untangle all these, these, this messy knot of feelings and emotions and history and relationships. Maybe it means finding a counselor. Maybe it means coming to talk to me or to one of the elders and, and letting us help you work through to the, step, the, the steps of healing that it will take till you can get to the point where you can forgive and you can make things right. Sometimes that's a process, sometimes a long process. But are you committed to the process? Have you begun the process? Are you seeing it through step by step with God's help? One of the things we're going to talk about in the discussion today is about how to apologize and, and how to receive a, an apology, especially when you don't feel the apology is sincere. We'll talk a little bit about that this morning in the discussion group. Let's pray. Jesus, you nail all of us with this one. Um, some of us are deeply wounded. Some of us have been nursing those wounds for years. Some of us, we've tried to forgive or we've tried to reconcile and we've failed. And it's not all, not all in our power. It depends on the other person too. But help us to see we get so lax about this, but Jesus, you are not lax. You speak to us lovingly in the strongest possible terms, and you urge us and you warn us about these things. I pray that we take them to heart and that we would gain the heart that you have, a, a heart which forgives, a heart which reconciles. Um, we need your help, Jesus. Amen. Amen.